We are pleased to have Darren Harper come and bring us the word. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It rises as one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other. Sorry, its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. Uh, And now we ask that by your spirit, Father, you would help us to uh, understand it and that you would help us apply it to our hearts. And Father, most importantly, we ask that your word would be a means of salvation to us this morning. That as your son Jesus is lifted up, that your promise that men would be drawn unto you would be fulfilled. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's a privilege to be here uh, with you this morning. Uh, I bring greetings from Emmanuel Presbyterian Church in Deland, Florida. Uh, You may know Mike and Maria Francis. Uh, Mike Francis is a senior pastor there, uh, and I've worked alongside of Mike for 10 years. Uh, And so in some ways, that's really how you're familiar to me, and that's really how I know Mike Malone is through the other Mike. Uh, And so... um, because of that, uh, Mike Malone called and, and said that uh, he needed some pulpit supply, and our session at Emmanuel was gracious to allow me to come down and be with you this morning. So I appreciate the privilege to be here with you. I uh, feel very much at home. I was warmly greeted as I came in this morning. Uh, that's one of the hallmarks of our church. Uh, if you walk into Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, you will be hugged by Roscoe. Uh, there is no question whether you will or won't. You will be. Uh, and at age 80, he has earned the right to hug anyone he wants to. Uh, but it's that warmth, that hospitality uh, of who we are in Christ that makes us brothers and sisters. So thank you for that warm welcome here this morning. Uh, I appreciate the welcome from your elders uh, and how they've encouraged me already this morning. Um, my family's not with me this morning uh, For some reason, the boys, I have four of them, did not think that driving two and a half hours and driving two and a half hours back would have been a lot of fun today. Uh, And uh, probably by the end of that journey, I would not have thought it would be a lot of fun either. Uh, 
so I have four boys and one wife. Uh, my four boys range from age to 15 to 6. Uh, my wife feels like she is stranded and lives in a locker room most of the time. Uh, so that's a little bit about our family dynamic. Uh, Adam Emanuel, I'm the director of outreach and missions, and uh, that is a fancy way of saying I'm the utility player. Uh, I do anything and everything that's needed for the body. Uh, that's my role. So often I have the privilege of preaching. Uh, I really like teaching probably more, so you'll probably pick up some of that uh, as I preach this morning. Uh, so I really view coming into this text as something that we're doing together. Yes, I've prepared, but we're learning together, uh, and uh, God has given me the opportunity to share some of the things that he's been doing in my life through this particular text uh, this morning. Uh, psalm 19 is a psalm of David. Uh, it's a hymn, and like most hymns in the, in the Psalter, it has a, a familiar structure. You see, in the Psalter, hymns typically tell us a little bit about who God is. And then it, then it tells us about his plans of redemption, and then it calls us, calls us to respond as his people. And Psalm 19 does this very same thing. And you see that in the first six verses, it tells us a little bit. We celebrate uh, the wonder, the craftsmanship, and the power of God's voice in creation. And then we move into verses 7 through 10, and where David magnifies the knowledge of God as is demonstrated through the word of God. And in verses 11 through 13, uh, David describes how we should respond to the revelation of creation, natural revelation of who God is, but most specifically how we should respond to God's special revelation, his word to us. And then you have sort of verse 14, which I think comes out in and of itself, and sort of the reason for the sermon title is there's a petition that closes the psalm. What is that petition? Verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. And so it's not too hard for most of us. We may consider that what this psalm is all about is that your input becomes your output. Right? You've heard that said. My mother used to tell me that all the time. Your input becomes your output. But I'm here to tell you that although that's true, that's not really the heart of what this psalm is about. You see, he is making the connection, and rightly so, that out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus tells us in Matthew, what? The mouth speaks. So there is a connection. But in order for our words to be right, our meditation needs to change. And what it needs to change in our meditation is what? We need a change of heart. You see, so it's not just a function of getting the right stuff coming in. It's a function of we need a new heart. We need a heart to rightly see, rightly understand what's been made and also what God has revealed through his word to us. And you see, maybe from the very inception, as we look at this psalm, he tells us how that heart problem is fixed in verse 14 as he says, what? My Lord, my rock, my redeemer. You see, David acknowledges that his heart is changed, not because he's changed his input, but because God has changed his heart. That he's become his refuge, that he's become his redeemer, and that he is his Lord. And you see, the same is true for us. Our redeemer needs to change. Our refuges need to change. Who is Lord of our life needs to change. In order for our words and our meditations to be pleasing unto God. And so that leads us quickly to the gospel 
uh, in many ways. Uh, David's petition here in verse 14, although simple, reflects the great depths of transformation afforded to God's people whose minds and hearts have been transformed by his grace. When we rightly see our creator and understand his righteous law, we are undone of our self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement and selfishness. We see ourselves soberly as sinners in need of a new heart that is fixed on a new meditation. Our passions for self-pleasure are overthrown with a passion to receive God's favor. We no longer see God as an aloof creator, but as our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And so in order for us to sing this psalm as David sings it, we need a new heart. And perhaps God would give us eyes and a mind to receive that new heart this morning as we unpack this psalm. Uh, The first section we run into in this psalm is uh, verses one through six. And uh, I call this the measuring line of creation. So if you were taking notes, this is the measuring line uh, of creation. And uh, this past summer, I went to uh, the west coast of Florida on vacation. It was an extended family vacation. My wife's parents and uh, her sister and family were with us. We went to the west coast of Florida, and I really don't like the west coast of Florida. You see, I don't like the Gulf. To me, it's a giant Petri dish. There's no waves. It's hot. But one thing the West Coast has that the East Coast doesn't have are sunsets. And it was late in the day. Typical Florida. We had an afternoon shower. And by 7 o'clock, it was completely uncovered. And we were out of the beach. And as the sun set, everyone was gathering out of the beach. You could tell everyone was anticipating a beautiful sunset. And they were not disappointed. But as I observed both my own heart and as I observed what people did as they observed the sunset, I observed several things in the way that we respond to sunsets. The first thing I observed is indifference. Sometimes it's kids, but a lot of times it's adults, too. We keep building sandcastles when there's this beautiful display of a sunset that's happening in the gulf and the water right behind us. You had people that could care less. They were missing out. The second way we respond to sunsets are pictures, right? We get a camera, and with that camera, we try to capture the beauty of a sunset. And in many ways, we know we can't accomplish that because a picture, no matter how good it is, never really tells the whole story. But you know what? What we tend to do with those pictures is we tend to use the beauty of the sunset for our own pleasure, to show other people to remember that vacation, to remember those things. We tend to say, see the beauty of the sunset, we're indifferent to it, or we try to capture it and use it for our own pleasure. The third thing I think people do is we worship. Now, I'm not really discussing a, a, a worship service that spontaneously broke out on the beach as people were seeing a sunset, but we worship. And I'm not talking about, in our context, sometimes we'll see in other cultures that literally the sunset is worshipped by people in paganism. But what I'm talking about how we worship is we worship our own mind and knowledge. And what we do as people, as, as Westerners, we begin to explain the sunset. We begin to talk about what it's like, how it happened, the lights, the colors. That's how we engage. And so often I think the way that we see God's creation is we're indifferent to it. We use it for our own pleasure or we explain it away in worship of how great we are in our own understanding. And yet what does the psalm tells us that we're to do with the sunset? We're to glory 
in the one who made it. You see, the sunset's not ultimate. The creator is. And so what the sunset's meant to do, what David is reminding us, it's meant to remind us that what? God is present with us. That the one who created all these things is near. And that the warmth that you feel, the beauty you feel, the glory you feel is not for yourself, but it's so that we would burst out in praise of the one who created the sunset. Regardless of our human response, what creation, what it should elicit from us is glory. The next thing we see is first we see the measuring line of creation. Next we see that creation reveals the sovereignty of God. In verse 2, the psalmist uh, David begins to speak of the voice of creation. That's that measuring line. It's that line by which uh, it says everybody hears. It's not an audible voice. uh, But what we see there is that creation reveals its author. The central message of our natural world is God made it. That's the central message. The central message is God made it. And because God made it, God owns it. Because God owns it, all rights and privileges to it are His. The voice of creation is the measuring line. It's that visible standard for all people in all places and all time. Creation speaks day and night. Creation speaks the language of all peoples. Every inch of planet Earth, the heavens, the solar system, the galaxies, known and unknown, testify to the existence and the presence of the one who designed them. As the architect and master builder, God rightfully owns all things and is sovereign over his creation. So not only is it the measuring line, and not only does God reveal his glory, not only does creation reveal his sovereignty, but creation reveals the supremacy of God. By utilizing the image of the sun, you notice that in verses 1 through 6, he begins to talk about the image of the sun as it's central to creation. See, David is just saying, is is communicating in the psalm what his eyes can see. He doesn't have a telescope. He doesn't have anything else. He's just saying, I can see the centrality of the sun in God's creation. I can see its supremacy. I can see how nothing is hidden from it. He he paints this image of what? Of a tent, of the tabernacle. Central to worship is the sun in creation. Revealing God's presence. It's impossible to miss. All people throughout all creation feel the heat of the sun as it runs its circuit from one end to the other. Nowhere on planet earth can we miss it. The next thing we do when we think about his supremacy in creation, he uses a picture for us uh, in terms of the bridegroom. It's a wedding picture that he uses for us. And unfortunately, we don't quite get it. And one of the reasons that we don't get it, in ancient Near Eastern custom, uh, in our, uh, the, the groom is the center of the wedding. You see, for us, that's not the case, is it? As any guy or any smart guy will testify to, right? The center of every wedding is the bride. Perhaps mother-in-law, but usually bride. Okay? That's the center of it, but not an ancient Near Eastern custom. And so what David is picking up on here is that the center of creation is the bridegroom. You see, in the engagement, the betrothal period, what would happen is there was an arrangement made to be married. And it was the groom's job, the bridegroom, bridegroom's job, to go prepare a place for his bride. And under his father's supervision, he would go prepare a place for his bride. And when he met his father's specifications, he would come at any hour of the time to go get his bride. And then the wedding feast would start. 
The bride's job was to be ready at any point in time that the groom would show up. And you see, David is drawing on that image, saying the son is just like that. But what he's alluding to is one day there will be a bridegroom. Will there not be? His name is King Jesus. You see, and as the bridegroom of his people, Christ will come for his church. And what is our job as his church, both individually and corporately, is to be what? To be ready for the coming of the bridegroom. The center of redemptive history is who? King Jesus. The redemption of all God's people. The center of that is who? King Jesus. He is our bridegroom that's coming for his people. And that's the image that David's setting up for us as we think about the supremacy of creation. How do we respond to the voice of God and creation? Paul in his letters to the Romans tells us that our problems in chapter 1 are a worship problem. It's not that we don't worship But it's what we worship. We respond to God's creation, to his natural revelation, by not worshiping the creator, but worshiping his creation. By exchanging the truth for a lie. By worshiping ourselves over him. And because of that, God in his great providence sends us his word. So that he would also reveal to us not only his supremacy, not only his sovereignty, but he revealed to us his means of redemption for us through his word. The perfections of God's word, God's special revelation to us, that's verses 7 through uh, 11. And uh, we see as we shift here, uh, there's an important shift that happens in the text. In verses 1 through 3, the word for God is... uh, uh, the a Hebrew word that really means one God. And that's rightly understood. The one God of Israel. But what we find here six times is he moves to Adonai when he's referring to the Lord, which is not just one God, but it's the covenant God of Israel. It's God's covenant name. It's who he, that's the name that he gave to Moses. This is who I am. And so not only does it reflect the oneness of God, it reflects his personalness. It reflects his presence with his people. It reflects his covenant promises to his people. And so when we begin speaking about God's word, we're really picking up on what? God's presence with his people where he says i will be your god you will be my people and this is how i will do that i want us to think three things about god's word i think the text helps us to see that uh, and it's the quality of god's word the quantity of god's word and the sweetness of god's word those are three different headings but i'm going to talk about them together because that's really how the psalmist does that the quantity of god's word the quality of god's word and the sweetness of god's word Uh, And we see that first in verse seven. You'll notice uh, that he says uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You see the quantity of God's word, the law. uh, It's really his revealed instructions to us. When we think of law, maybe the best way that we think about it are the Ten Commandments, right? His law to us. It's comprehensive. It's instructions to follow. And what happens? The quality of that is what? It's perfect. It's perfect. It's absolutely flawless. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we would all say there's no civil law that we live under that's flawless. But God's law is flawless. And its sweetness is seen how? 
It revives the soul. Is your soul thirsty this morning? Come to his word. Come to his law. The next thing that we see in verse 7 are what? The testimonies. Uh, The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. His testimonies, the aspects of truth testified by God himself. It's his covenant declarations. It's who he says that he is. They're sure. They're confirmed because God never lies. They're confirmed because of his testimony. You can count on it. When God makes a promise, he fulfills it. And what is the result of that? What is its sweetness uh, in our life? It makes us wise. And that wisdom is not speaking about a lack of intelligence, someone that's done, but it, it makes us wise into to who God is. It's for all of us so that we would know who he is. The next thing that we see when we think of, uh, of God's law in terms of its quality, we see the precepts, the commandments of God, uh, verse 8. And the best thing, way to think about precepts and commandments is, is precision, it's authority, it's the fine print. So the fine print of God's law to us is what? It's right. It's level. It's straight. It's the plumb line that we're to follow. And what does it do? It rejoices the heart. You see, in an age of pluralism, an age where we don't want to define what's right and wrong, or it's how we define that, it's up to you, God's precepts are the fine print that tells us what is right and wrong. Where is the path that leads to him? Next, we see the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord in verse nine. uh, The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring altogether. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's the fear of him. It's the right understanding of who he is. It leads us to what? It leads our hearts to to be able to see, uh, to be free from corruption, to be free from impurity. So that what? Our eyes will be enlightened and that we would taste that sweetness forever. And lastly, We see that the rules, the rules are his judgments. They're what? They're dependable. We can count on them. And they're righteous. They're never varying. They're never lacking. They're always righteous. And so David is painting for us a picture uh, of what it's like, uh, that what God's word is like, its quantity, its quality, and its sweetness. David summarizes in verse 10 the value, the quantity and the quality and the experience of God's word as being that of gold and honey. Gold which is refined by fire and honey that is the sweetest thing that David can think of. Honey from the comb. That's what God's word is like. We are being called to respond to the witness of creation Most specifically, we're being called to respond to the witness of God's word. And so how does creation and God's word, what is the cumulative effect they have in our lives? How does the worshiper respond? And I think it's a little surprising because uh, where he goes in the text is not usually what we think of first, right? If I had to characterize, what is the first thing that we see? How do we respond to the revelation of God in creation, the revelation of God in word? We respond in what? Repentance. Because it reveals to us our errors. It reveals to us hidden sin. It reveals to us our arrogance. It reveals to us that our words and our meditations are are askew. 
And so our first response in worship in verses 12 and 13 is one of repentance. It calls us to repent. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, speaking on Psalm 19, uh, 19 uh, has a quote that I think is helpful for us. And it goes like this. Self-righteousness arises partly from pride, but mainly from ignorance of God's law. It is because men know little or nothing concerning the terrible character of the divine law that they foolishly imagine themselves to be righteous. They are not aware of the deep spirituality, the stern severity of the law, or they would have other or they would have other and wiser notions. Once let them know how strict the law deals with the thoughts, how it brings itself to bear upon every emotion of the inner man. And there is no one creature beneath God's heaven who would dare to think of himself righteous in God's sight, in virtue of his own deeds and thoughts. Only let the law be revealed to a man and let him know how strict the law is, how infinitely just his self and his self-righteousness will shrivel into nothing. It will become a filthy rag in his sight, whereas before he thought it to be a godly garment. We're in desperate need of God's law in our life that we rightly see him, but that we would rightly know who we are. And thus, understand our need for repentance. But notice, uh, our response is not simply one of repentance, but our response is one of faith. Uh, three words that give us that uh, there. He says what? Declare me. Declare me. Blameless and innocent. Keep me. Justification. What? That I would be blameless and innocent. I need you to do that for me, God. I can't do that for myself. I can't keep myself from sin. I can't declare myself blameless and innocent. I need you to do that for me. So you see, what David is declaring is, I'm turning, I see my sin, and I need you, God. I need my Lord, my refuge, my Redeemer, to cover my iniquities and my sin that your law reveal in my life. Uh, three reflections uh, for us. Uh, the first reflection is to believe. Psalm 19 is a call to praise, to declare his great creative glories and power. This psalm is a call to praise God for, for his word, that it's, it, for its greatness and value, the splendor of his quality. Psalm 19 calls us to praise God because he has revealed himself as our Lord, refuge and redeemer. He is my Lord because he created all things. He is my refuge. Because despite my sin, he took me in. He is my redeemer because he saved me from my sin. How has, my rede- how has he redeemed, redeemed me? The story of redemption is still uh, unfolding in the pages of Psalm 19. But it's being fully told, and we know it fully told, in Jesus Christ. And it's, so it's through Christ that we see what? He is the word become flesh. He is the word that tells us who we are, but he's also the one that does what he dies for the penalty of my sin and gives me his righteousness so that we can hear and sing with the psalmist and say what you've declared me to be clean and innocent because of the work of your law, your word that's incarnate in Jesus Christ. 
So the first thing it calls us to is really to believe and to rest and to trust in Jesus. And that's both for Christian and non-Christian, is it not? Christian, we need to move away and rest again anew this morning in the redeeming work of Christ. And non-Christian, perhaps for the first time, you need to hear God's call in your life as He reveals your sinfulness to repent of your sin and turn towards God and depend on the work of Christ on your behalf. The second thing uh, that it does is it causes us to feel. See, Psalm 19 calls us to feel. Yes, I'm aware we're in a Presbyterian church. I'm a guy. But it calls us to feel. You see, when we view sunsets, when we view the glory of God in creation, I tend to rush by it. And I don't pause there long enough to feel the wonder of my Creator. To feel the heat of His glory. And we need to do a better job as His people at pausing and staying there long enough to hear the voice of the witness of creation, to hear the voice of His Word in our life, and to wonder and to glory in who He is. Because not only does He want our mind, but He wants our hearts. Not only does He want how we think, but He wants how we feel. And that which should bring me the greatest joy is to be God and God alone. And so we got to pause. we got to stop. We have to ask Him to change our hearts. And we have to feel. Uh, lastly, uh, the text is uh, calling us to do. So it's calling us to believe, to rest in what God's redemptive work in Christ. It's calling us to, to feel and it's calling us to do. And so it's calling us to press in on God's word. It's calling us to eat and to feed on its goodness and its sweetness. It's calling us to find its preciousness in our life. And we do that as we read God's word. We do that as we meditate on God's word. We do that as we hear God's word preached. We do that as we hear God's word taught. And I've already, Psalm 19 already tells us what the results of God's word are going to be in our life, both for the Christian and the non Christian. In a way that it presses into our life even more. Notice how the psalmist, particularly in verses uh, 11 and 12, he talks about secret sins. The follies of secret sins. And so one of the things this text is calling us to do is that God's word would press in our life to reveal the mystery of secret sins in our life. And we all have them. Some of them we know and some of them we don't know. And what secret sins are is they're practical atheism. You see, what secret sins do in our lives is we either reject God in creation and we reject his word. And so when we're rejecting the voice of creation, rejecting his word, because we know there's sin in our life, we don't move away from it. What are we doing? We're leaving as if there is no God. And it's not safe. And what we see is that uh, it creates in our heart uh, misery. Secret sins aren't safe because they make us miserable, because we're duplicious. Secret sins mean that often I am acting one way and yet living another somewhere else. And so what we're being called to, to, to here in this text is to move away from secret sins. Spurgeon talks about it this way. We must not harbor traitors. Secret sins are traitors. It is the highest treason against the king of heaven. Let us, not dra- let us drag traitors out into the light. 
and offer them up on the altar and give up the dearest of our secret sins as at the will and the bidding of God. There's a great danger in a little secret sin. Therefore, avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn away from it. Shun it. And God give thee grace to overcome it. You see, it's calling us to do. It's calling us to move away from sin and even the secret sins of our life and to move to God and to find those sins and to root them out by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its quantity, its quality, its sweetness. Father, we thank you that your word tells us about who you are. We thank you that your word tells us about uh, your means of redemption for us. We thank you that it tells us the truth about who we are and that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so, Father, we thank you that you provide that Savior, that you redeem us through the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, because he died on the cross for our sins and he's raised for our resurrection and our righteousness. And so this morning, would you help us to look to Christ? And Father, would you help us to be your people who believe in you, uh, your people who feel you rightly, and Father, your people uh, who are moving away from sin and moving towards righteousness. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.